Hello and welcome to the Canadian Wargamer Podcast. Yes, it's the Canadian Wargamer podcast featuring two affable and youngish granddads, Mike and James, talking about primarily miniature wargames and the occasional hex and counter excursion from Mike from our unique perspective in the Great White North. And as the strains of La Foy d'Arabla die away, here are your hosts, Mike and James. Hey folks, it's Mike. Welcome to the Canadian Wargamer podcast episode 18. We are a little bit out of sync tonight because James and I are not together for the whole podcast. So in the first part, you're going to hear me talking to Dr. Robert Engen, and uh, you'll get about an hour and a bit of fascinating discussion from Robert about um, wargaming as a tool for professional military education, specifically how it's used in the Canadian military. Uh, Robert's a, a super engaging guy, and I think that's a really, really great discussion. I'm really, really grateful that he gave us so much time on what is basically a hobby podcast. And then in the second half, the Canadian Content Corner is focused entirely on uh, an up-and-coming Canadian miniatures company called Tundra Works. And James gets together with me for a shortish uh, conversation with Morgan Drossen about uh, Tundra Works and its... Uh, new line of 18th century miniatures, sort of in the 15 to 18 mil scale. And you might recall a conversation that we had with uh, Cynthia Jing a few episodes back, the Laurentian Tabletop Group, um, and their efforts to get uh, miniature wargaming, specifically back black powder gaming, into the uh, hands of younger gamers. So Morgan is part of that whole scene, and some of that will come a bit clear. So first of all, we'll go to the conversation with Robert Engen, and then we'll go to Morgan Drossen. Stay tuned. I'd like to introduce our guest, Robert Engen. Robert, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you very much, Michael. It's a great pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, we're really, really happy to have you. So I'll just maybe say a little bit about you uh, from a, an introductory point of view, and then uh, you can uh, fill that in. But Robert is uh, uh, on his way to Australia very shortly while he will be working with the Australian military as a senior lecturer in war studies at Deakin University in Australia. He'll be posted to the Australian War College in Canberra, which um, uh, is an absolutely lovely town and a mecca for um, coffee drinkers. Um but it's also, uh, uh, there. You'll, Robert, you'll be doing an extension of what you did uh, with our military at the Canadian Forces College. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I've just uh, finished a uh, finished a, a three year contract at the Canadian Forces College in Toronto. Um, I was uh, deputy head of um, on the civilian side for uh, for the Department of Military Planning and Operations, and um, did a lot of work putting together exercises, simulations, war games, um, as well as delivering more traditional curriculum elements. And um, I've been offered the job in Australia that is, uh, as far as I can tell, for most intensive 
and purposes, the exact same job, uh, only upside down. <laughs> yeah. I, I found the standing upside down thing, uh, took me about half a day to adjust when I got there. Um, and, uh, as I said on our, uh, podcast, Facebook page, in addition to, um, uh, our guest Robert's involvement in, uh, professional military education, and we're particularly, uh, particularly hoping to talk to you tonight a little bit about the, the planning exercise you did based on Operation Husky. Uh, because we've James and I have talked about Husky from a wargaming point of view, the Canadians in Sicily being, I think, an absolutely fascinating campaign. So I think that would be a great uh, sort of test case to talk about um, uh, what makes professional military education gaming different from hobby wargaming, and 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 what what are the similarities. But you, you're also a, a I think for somebody who. I'll say this as a graybeard for somebody who looks so young. You're a prolific uh, and accomplished author. Uh, so I've just been working my way through uh, your book, um, uh, Canadians Under Fire, about the Canadian uh, infantry and its effectiveness in the Second World War. And that, in addition to that, uh, I've also been working my way through your um, your other book, Strangers in Arms, uh, which I think are, are kind of two kind of complementary studies of the Canadian Army from a combat leadership point of view. Yeah, combat leadership, uh, morale, um, motivation, uh, the, yeah. the, the, the human dimension of warfare is kind of the, the thread that connects a lot of the scholarly work that I've done in the past, especially yeah. those two books. Yeah. And those are things, of course, that even uh, uh, at a hobby wargaming level, depending on how granular, you know, your simulation, those are things are, are crucial, right? You know, your motivation, morale, training, leadership. Um, uh, absolutely. And then a book that I, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on, your book with uh, Matthew Barrett on uh, your graphic history of Hill 70 and, and the First World War. Um, yeah, yeah, through, through their eyes, um, the, uh, the the graphic history of Hill 70 and the First World War, which I'm 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 very privileged to have been a part of. Um, I, my my uh, co-creator, uh, Dr. Matthew Barrett, um, is uh, was a we, we we were PhD students at uh, Queen's University together and had the same supervisor and um, and he he's a fantastic artist um, and the the amount of work he poured into this is absolutely unbelievable and that the final product especially coming out of a university press um I, honestly I, I i i cringe a little at self-promotion sometimes but it really has to be seen to be believed because it is 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 fantastic i got my author's copies a few days ago i think it's on sale um just about everywhere now uh because chapters indigo picked it up so it should be should be uh should be around uh available and at a, at a decent price point too so yeah. i'm 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 really i'm really thrilled uh that that one's out in the world now yeah yeah i'm looking forward to getting my my hands on that uh, myself so yeah, you, that's your that's your background, and uh, there's uh, an awful lot that we can talk about tonight. So, I thought maybe having you know done the the, the usual kind of conference chairman's uh, you know here's our guest and here's why he's amazing. Um, why don't you fill in? We'll start maybe by filling in if you could talk a little bit about yourself, Robert, your um, your academic bio, and then your how you got interested in um, wargaming from a, both from a PME point of view and a hobby point of view. 
<laughs> well, um, my, my academic bio actually has very little to do with uh, how I got into how I got into wargaming. I, I, I went the route of a, of a history PhD um, in large part because I love writing and research and um, and have uh, and, and can do these things um, fairly decently and fairly quickly um, and uh, have uh, had a had a tremendously good time um, working on it. I, I didn't think grad school was supposed to be that much fun. But my 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 interest in wargaming goes back uh, a great deal earlier and back to um, my my ill spent years as a as a teenager. Um, and instead of uh, instead of attending, <laughs> instead of attending math classes, spent a lot of time uh, gaming um, Dungeons and Dragons initially, and then branching out into uh, into some other games. And um, it's always uh, there's always been games in my life, and it has always been one of the uh, one of the the joys of my life to be able to um, to uh, to participate in games and. As I went through grad school I, and and got to teach classes, and then eventually was employed first at the Royal Military College, and then um, and then uh, subsequently at the Canadian Forces College, um, the country's uh, senior staff college for mid-career military officers. Um, for 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 anyone who who um, hasn't heard of it before, which is probably most people, the opportunities kept on coming up to merge some of the uh, some of my of my earlier interests in with with gaming with um, with with pedagogy with with trying to trying to teach, trying to communicate things better. Um, it really started for me with um, Dr. Rob Hubert at the University of Calgary when I was an undergraduate. Um, he's, a, he's a political science professor and a, 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 a fantastic, uh, fantastic teacher. And I remember him sitting us down and having a class-wide uh, and all, a class-wide game of diplomacy, oh. um, and, and it was, and he put us all on teams, and he played. He played a serious, a serious game of diplomacy, um, and my team was Germany, and kicked the hell out of everyone. It was great, and it was uh, um, diplomacy has became my favorite game. It is Bartley's without without any exception is my favorite game of all time, yeah. um, which to anyone who is familiar with that game tells you a lot about me you sorry you, you... um v and it's not flattering either um <laughs> i just have to stop you a minute because i i'm a dip fan from way back you you won you won the game as germany that's that's a hard thing to do well, it, we didn't we didn't win the game because as a as an in class as an in class played live exercise you can only go so many turns. Right. Um, but we had uh, we had destroyed all of our rivals and we're we're, we're set up to, we're set up to take to, by the time we, we we had to cut it off before we got to the late game. But it was clear it was going to come down to Germany or Turkey, and I knew which one I was going to bet on. Yeah. Um, so it was uh, yeah it was uh, uh, it was it was a wonderful introduction to that game. But it was also I think more importantly an introduction introduction to the idea that yeah you can use games to teach important points the the, the point there was about um was about it was trying to, to to get us to think strategically trying to get us to think in an international relations kind of way that that real politic way of managing relationships between nations mm -hmm. um which is i mean in in some ways it's, it's highly theoretical it's not necessarily exactly how nations uh nations operate um we hope diplomacy is uh is <laughs> is, a, is a pretty nasty game um but you know, it, it still it still communicates a series of lessons about those things that I have not forgotten. You know, twenty years later, yeah. And yeah. the the and and that I took that forward as a thing that this is something that 
this is a really good way of of learning and teaching. This is a way of um, of if you can if you can kind of get games that uh, really hone in on the lessons that you want to teach and really you know nail it those teaching objectives and those learning objectives. Um, you can it's far better I think to use a game um, than to run a seminar or to do a threaded discussion online or God forbid listen to a lecture, which is uh, the, the you know often the default pedagogical mode or, or andragogical mode if you're if you're doing adult learning mm -hmm. um, is to you know sit everyone down in a lecture theater and talk at them for an hour and um, say that yes you have covered the material and they have learned these things eh, it, it, you don't usually learn that much from most people don't learn that much from listening to listening to lectures um, but a lot of them will learn unforgettable lessons from uh, from games mm -hmm. yeah yeah no and you know, diplomacy is such a great entry example because it's it's a pretty unforgiving game in terms of you can't you can't rely upon the dice you can't uh, uh, just entirely, and it's not even just the battlefield calculus, right? It's not just you know my three units against your two means I win. It's it, do my negotiations with the with you uh, um, as my potential ally bear fruit? Is that support going to be there if I need it? You know, have, have I demonstrated a reason why I should have your cooperation? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, precisely. It is. Um, I don't know if there are any war games that are quite as human and based as much on those 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 human interactions um, to the exclusion of everything else. Aside from that, it's, it's basically a simple arithmetic game. It's it's simpler than chess. But when you throw in seven players, all of their own agendas, all of them lying to one another, and you you need their support to get anywhere, and yet you also need to betray them all in order to win. Uh, it, it is it is a it is a fantastic game. I, for a while, I was a, I was a I was a, a ranked player on on one of the major diplomacy sites online, and I, I had to I had to leave it behind when um, I had to leave it behind as a as a as a hobby when uh, when my children were born because I, I I get I get too into online diplomacy even with like a week or a month of uh, between between orders it 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 takes over my life. Well, so you know James and I talk a lot about uh, miniatures, which is probably what 90% of our podcast focuses on because I have, as you can see from all the boxes behind me, I have an interest in um, board games that, uh, you know, whether they're hex encounter games or a lot of these games are now the new uh, GMT coin sort of kind of games, uh, which James unfortunately doesn't share. So I don't get a chance to talk about it as much as I do. But um, what, what was there besides diplomacy in your formation as a gamer? I own a lot of the games that are behind you on the on the on the shelf as well. Um, I don't get to play them as often as you might think, especially since the uh, since the since the pandemic. But um, I, I have I have invested in a lot of them. A lot of them are in a shipping container right now on their way to Australia. So I do hope I'm going to see most of them again. Um, but uh, there there were um, a lot of the. I, 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 the, the, the GMT series and the, the, the GMT does, does, uh, really, really good games. Um, and that the coin series is, uh, is, uh, is very, uh, is very good. Um, I'm hoping to have the chance to, to play more of them. A lot of them I've been kind of dissecting for, um, inspiration for rules for designing my own games. So that's, that, that's ultimately where I, uh, where I, where I went with, um, from a professional point of view was trying to take what I was, what I was seeing on these board games and, and try to, try to incorporate 
integrated into the games that I was going to be running in classrooms. And so a lot of it is um, a lot of it is uh, uh, a professional interest in um, stealing things that work really well um, in terms of the mechanics and like the rules and 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 the interactions between uh, between the players. Um, I've also I've also found more recently, however, uh, that because wargaming was a was both my hobby and and then became my profession kind of it, it became intertwined with my professional life that um that I, I needed to create more more space there um between the two of them and to create more of a divide so that the um the a lot of the the, the more serious war games um I now kind of place in a, a professional mindset like that that's that's the professional side of my life um I've, I've actually uh taken up Warhammer as a as a hobby recently um in part because I love I love the painting and the uh, and the kit bashing and 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 the, the the creative aspect of it but also because um the uh, uh, it's 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 so far fetched that like it bears no relation to actual to actual war fighting at really at all. There's, there's some tactical principles there, but it's not. Um, there's in some ways it's kind of the inversion of what real warfare is, and I like that. I like that it, it kind of creates a nice space in my head where I can enjoy it as a hobby without having to think about well, what how can I use this in a classroom as well? Because that's that's invariably where my mind goes when I'm playing more serious war games. I immediately start thinking, well, what can I poach from this in order to uh, in order to get a better experience for uh, for the officers? Um, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I have regular. Just- discussions with my wife about why do you have so many games like is, don't you have enough and, and have you played them all and my answer is always well no darling but I can assure you that I've, I've looked at the rules in every box and that's and she doesn't understand really that sometimes that's the most interesting part of it but yeah absolutely one does one does hope to play them before one dies I think otherwise <clears throat> I'll be probably be buried like a king surrounded by all of these oh, I, I wanted to talk just a little bit or just ask you a question that has sort of occurred to me as we were talking because um you know the the whole the history of of the hobby hobby gaming is for the most part it's at least board gaming it's it's an american story right miniatures gaming i think is a british story for the most part in the 60s and 70s you had these guys like grant and featherstone that were doing picking up the stuff that hg wells was doing in the 20s and 30s and and a lot of british hobby manufacturers today i think can trace their roots back to that but board gaming is paper hex encounter gaming whatever you want to call it i think that's more of a north american story and it comes in part out of well avalon hill which i think was sort of aimed more at recreational gamers from the very beginning but then you know i'm I'm one of the few teenagers who in the late 70s actually had an active subscription to strategy and tactics and jim what jim donegan was doing in in SPI was in some ways sort of a forerunner of academics like yourself. He wasn't an academic, but he was able to shop simulation gaming to the U.S. military. And, you know, if you look at all of those SPI titles from um, the 70s, they were all Cold War related, right? The, the the really successful ones. And he had, you know, games like Sixth Fleet and stuff, um, NATO Division Commander, The Next War. You know, those were all, I think, games that where Dunnigan was probably exploiting his contacts within the U.S. military. And I'm pretty sure a lot of his revenue came from that until the end of the Cold War. Um, Although it's really interesting. You were talking about Dungeons and Dragons earlier. It's really interesting. If you look at the history of SPI publications, you can see in the late 70s, they think, oh, shit, you know, there's a lot of money being made from this fantasy stuff. (laughs) So (laughs) they launched their fantasy magazine and, and all sorts of. You know, and then there, 
who can forget their Freedom of the Galaxy game, which is the most blatant Star Wars ripoff. But anyway, <laughs> so in the Canadian uh, wargaming, is, it does not have any like big stories like that. It was all, you know, it was a very, very small market where you either, you know, you bought toy soldiers from England or maybe from minifigs and, you know, you hope to find a Featherstone rule set in your library. Or, you know, if you were a kid like me, you might have found a Panzer Blitz in Kmart or your my dad bought me a strategy and tactics subscription because he thought I was a geek, but my dad was an army officer, so he understood that. Where am I going with this? I guess the question is, when did wargaming start intersecting in Canada with the Canadian military and with the Canadian, with, with the, the development process of Canadian officer training? Oh boy. I don't, I don't fully know the answer to that. Okay. I can tell you a little bit about what I, I do know about the intersection of, of war games um, in, in Canada with, with the Canadian military. And uh, a lot of it came out of the, now there were, there were, there were a number of, there were a number of um, large scale professional tabletop games that were, uh, that were run in the sixties and especially the seventies and, and, and the eighties. And a lot of them were run at Fort Frontenac in Kingston um, with the, uh, with the army staff college. Um, the army, I think was, was, was very much at the forefront of, uh, of, of, of using this as a medium. Um, I, I say war games. They were, I have yet to really get my hands on a complete on a complete rule set it was um, probably more a simulation more an in-depth simulation they they it was all about um planning out how the canadian brigade in germany was going to fight in the event of a soviet invasion of central europe and this was um this was the this was a a a, a a simulation that was so detailed that I believe um, that the game lasted about five months to uh, replicate or to to simulate about six hours worth of combat. So, like we're, we're talking, we're talking. Uh, like it, at, at that point it's not so much a game as a chore like it is your or, or possibly your life's work like it is um the 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 scale of it was unbelievable because they're, they're they're testing tactics they're testing um they're testing equipment um or in so much as they can because they're they're using their it, it, none of it's really happening it's it is a a, a game that was uh, was going on but but they had you know they've got their your red opposing force and your 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 blue forces um the and that for a long time i think was what a war game was um with the with the Canadian with the Canadian military and I don't know exactly where intersections with um hobby wargaming uh came in but the idea I, I think that they they came in in the United States much much earlier than than they have in Canada the idea that you can that there's something useful about having a a more abstracted game something that is something that is uh not that doesn't need to perfectly model reality because uh, that that's really what they were trying to do like when you when you break down six hours of combat into a game that you can play over the course of six months like that is that is really like you you're, you're trying to capture like every every beat of the heart you're trying to you're trying to capture every round expended it's an insane level of detail it goes and and it is uh i, I don't even I'm not even sure the war game really should apply to it. It is it is trying to create a perfect simulation, um, and I I I I I don't know I don't know. Uh, I mean, it, it was good. We never got to test out whether or not they actually had any useful, uh, um, whether it was a, a, a it was useful because thankfully war never started that would uh, put these things to the test. Um, but the the idea that you could you don't have to go to that much detail that you can focus in on specific lessons that you're trying to learn. We have um, have smaller games that are iterative um, that are that you can play over and over 
over again, where you abstract everything except what you're trying to learn something about. That 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 came in. I I I I would say sometime in the late '90s, um, early 2000s, and I'm I'm kind of guessing there. I know that um, I know that they've done a fair amount of it at Fort Frontenac, but that it also kind of went into abeyance for a while. Um, the uh, now former commandant uh, at uh, at the staff college there, um, uh, Todd Strickland, who's now the new commandant at Canadian Forces College, he really pushed for a renaissance in wargaming at Fort Frontenac. But I think that. That speaks to two things. First of all, he has um, excellent taste in pedagogy, um, and secondly, that that it had it had um, it had there had been um, something of a retreat away from that form, and he was he was he was working to working to bring it back. Um, I know that at in Forces College there was a wargaming cell for a long time in the in the uh, in the two thousands, I believe, into the early twenty tens. Um, that was eventually done away with as part of some reshuffling, but it was it was entirely people in uniform, and it was uh, very connected to the exercises that were taking place there. And I think um, when the military talks about wargaming, they're usually talking about um, talking about a, a very specific kind of war game that is actually laid out in doctrine as like this is what a war game is um and it is uh and, and it 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 bears it bears a very it has some innovative um some innovative uh, parts to it but it, it it doesn't have that much relation to hobby wargaming mm-hmm. um and it has its own has its own limitations and its own uh, its own its own set of strengths the um and and from when i when i started at, at cfc i, I guess that was 20 2019 2018 um there there was there was effectively no no war gaming that was going on as a part of the curriculum um aside from what was a part of their operational planning process which was Ooh. the uh um which was that that you know staff staff planning based war game yeah well that's there's a lot there's a lot to digest there and that's such a great answer thank you i that whole um six month to six hour game you described at fort frontenac that's absolutely fascinating and I, I wonder if there's anybody still alive who took part in that, but um, you know that I'm, I'm, that would be an absolutely fascinating research project. Is the you know what what Canadian wargaming has looked like in, in at various points in Canada's military history? Because I'm thinking back to the the interwar period, maybe or the people who who eventually became divisional commanders, or you know in the Canadian military, like in World War II. One wonders if if their training would have even touched on anything i don't know like a, a kriegspiel kind of thing or something I, I, maybe if they'd gone to a british staff college it might have but yeah i think they i think it actually did i, I think there were um there were a number of, of of sand table games um sand table exercises that were um that were were not not they're not hobby hobby war gaming at all but they were connected to that kriegspiel tradition of um yeah. of the german staff college and yeah. they did a fair amount of that was being done uh both in britain and in canada during the interwar period um that I know some of our senior commanders were were definitely exposed to. There was a there was a journal, the Canadian Canadian Defense Quarterly, I believe it was during the interwar years, that published a number of articles on um, on sand table exercises and 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 war games like that. And in a fair amount of detail, there it's it's it can be a little hard to find to find these things, but it was uh, they're 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 well worth reading if you have an eye towards the history of of uh, of what of how we've you know where we've come from professionally. A lot of it was um, was uh, was uh, these decision based 
based war games that were and, and many of them were actually played uh played with uh with a map of kingston which is an idea i, I later i later took just because that was where the staff colleges were like that, that was where everybody was and it, um, because of the because of the of the of the river there and uh, and the the terrain features it actually makes a really good it makes a really good opposing force area to to practice a lot of different uh, different ideas in so um oh, yeah. so kingston has been fought over and and won won and lost many many times <laughs> Uh, as long as they don't uh, shell Shea Piggy, that's uh, I'm thinking, yeah, my favorite. <laughs> that's a war crime right there. Exactly, it's a cultural landmark. Yeah, you know, when I was uh, when I started at uh, with Four RCR at the beginning of my military career uh, as their uh, their padre, I had the run of the place, and I remember wa- wandering around the basement of Woolsey Barracks, and in this in this room there was this massive sand table that was tucked in a corner, and uh, I remember asking the you know the RSM and the colonel at the time who was a smart professor called Brock Millman um is anybody what's the story of this nobody knew like it, had, it just it was just part of the furniture but yeah at one point it had been used I'm sure I I guess too and this is leading up to maybe you're talking about your work you know in the in this in the Cold War period the Kriegspiel thing it seems to me would have been of limited utility because you had your you, you had you were one brigade within a much larger organization you, you might have had your predetermined spots where you would roll out from barracks to defend, you know, and my older brother who, you know, served in the Canadian Army in West Germany at that time was adamant that if they had, you know, any degree of warning, they, they could have rolled out and stopped the Warsaw Pact cold because they knew exactly where to fight and what to do and blah, blah, blah. I always admired his optimism, but anyway. Um, you know, I mean, at that point, there, there weren't a lot of operational decisions, really. It would have all been, you know, very tactical it seems to me you know and maybe you know your operational stuff would have been your brigade commander coordinating with you know their opposite numbers but it would have been really just you know this company here this company here this company here and that's about it highly tactical highly highly tactical um the 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 entire idea of um of the operational art, if you will, as as uh, how you how you translate you know strategy into into tactics, I think is a is a is something that has that the Canada has always struggled with, in part because of our habit of uh, undertaking contribution warfare and and sending small forces to participate as a part of larger coalitions, um, which is which is which is. Uh, Fair enough. It costs us a lot more to send these uh, to send forces anywhere than it does just about anyone else in the world, given mm-hmm. given our, our 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 position on the map. Um, and it is uh, so it you know there's 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 budgetary considerations, and um, I don't want to don't want to fault uh, fault the government for for subscribing to that, but it does mean that a lot of the things that can be simulated by by war games, as far as Canada is concerned, end up being very tactical. And we'll we'll talk about Operation Husky in a in a in a, in a few minutes here. I expect, but um, one of the one of the difficulties of Husky, especially from a Canadian perspective, is that all the decisions there are, are purely tactical, and most of the of the big ones um, are being made by by the British. Well, all of the big ones are being made by the British and the Americans, and the, and uh, yeah, Canadian commanders aren't really being consulted. It, it, they're they're they're, they're they're able to fight their division, but um, that's that's as that's as high as it goes. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's a perpetual problem for trying to represent uh, Canadian. 
um, uh, the, the Canadian military uh, military activities, I think, mm-hmm. um, or specifically Canadian military activities. You, you run into that thing where a lot of a lot of what is possible um, in, a, in a traditional hobby wargaming uh, way to, to, to simulate is ultimately going to be, be very, very tactical. Yeah, yeah. And if you're a miniature gamer, you're probably totally happy or, or a board gamer who's kind of comes out of the, the squad leader tradition, you're totally happy with that tactical level stuff, right? Because your problems are super granular. It's where do I cite, you know, where do I cite my heavy machine gun? You know, how do I cover <clears throat> my advance of, you know, this platoon or whatever? You know, do I use my two inch mortars for smoke, blah, blah, blah. But if you're seduced as, as I am by the, the whole sweep of operational um you know, thinking and, you know, in, in my heart, I'm a Napoleonic Corps commander, right? I just have this vast swath of Italy or, or Eastern Europe. You know, I want to screen my three divisions of infantry with my cavalry and have my artillery reserve ready and blah, blah, blah. It's very exciting. And you can you can take that to the table if you do really small scale miniatures as I do in the Napoleonic spirit. Um, yeah, you're right. In, in the Canadian experience, I mean, in World War One, you've got a whole Canadian Corps, which is amazing but that whole canadian corps is one part of a much larger machine and divisional commanders were were basically told by their corps commanders you know how they would attack and where they would attack and you know you're running a a small operation for you know higher management really in 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 through their eyes uh matt uh, Matt Barrett, uh, my co-creator did a wonderful map that was in front in August of 1917, when the Battle of Hill 70 took place. And um, it's just with like, with like dashes representing um, represent, and each dash represents one division that was on the front um, at the time there, and so you can you can you can identify the Canadian Corps, and you can uh, like, but there's hundreds of them on both sides. Like it is like the, the, yes, we, the Canadian Corps was 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 great. It was um, it was uh, especially towards the end, really was the spearhead of the British Expeditionary Force. But it is a very small number of formations in the grand scheme of the First World War. The the scale of it boggles the imagination, and so even even then. Um, the, the, there's really there's really no operational decisions that are being made by the Canadians. I would argue it, it's still um, the, Arthur Curry has has a free hand to fight battles. I see there's very little Canadian input beyond that, and that's I, I've I've been trying to I've been trying for a while now to come up with a Hill seventy. Uh, a board game that you could something that you could use to uh if not exactly simulate the battle to at least capture sort of the flavor of of trench warfare and some of the dynamics of 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 uh of what was happening on the ground um and and the scale the, the fact that even even success in the first world war is monstrous in terms of the number of casualties that will be sustained and the amount of sacrifices required for the most menial um for the for the tiniest gains is so unthinkable by our standards of of, of by our modern standards that it, it's it almost becomes unthinkable. And I, I really wanted to try to capture that in a board game. So that's a that's a a project that's been on the back burner for me for a while. But I, I did get I did get trench maps and started you know hexagonalizing them and and cleaning them up for uh, for uh, for production at uh, at one point. And um, I'm I'm hopeful. That um, I'm hopeful that uh, uh, that uh, once things settle down a little bit, I, I, I'll be able to I'll be able to dive back into that because I I think I think it's it's a yeah it's a really interesting problem. 
Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And we did an interview uh, on the podcast a couple of shows back with uh, a guy called Sean Taylor, who's a Canadian war games writer out of Victoria, who's written a set of miniature rules called Great War Spearhead, which I, I'm actually interested in trying because it's it's um, divisional and core level. So it, it assumes, you know, a fairly large scale of, you know, where you've, you know, your units are representing divisions or cores and your, your planning is pretty high level. But Sean actually made it sound interesting, which... I've I've always thought World War One tactical gaming, you know, has its own interest. But it, it partly too, there's just the modeling, right? I'm not interested in modeling modeling a trench and a fire parapet and barbed wire and shell holes, and because I've, I've read enough about the period to find it kind of depressing. But the idea of thinking, you know, trying to make some of the make some of those calls that the Canadian Corps had to do during the hundred days, that might be interesting. If, but you'd need a lot of very very small scale figures. So let's jump ahead to let's Husky because I, I think that's a great um, segue. So I mean Husky's so fascinating from just as as you as we were saying in terms of the number of moving parts that um, you had in First Division. I mean it was it was one of what six Allied divisions. Seven. Was, oh yeah, yeah, seven on seven on the first day. On the first day, yeah, and it was it was really only sort of put in at the last minute and. Uh, it had a, a, you know, as I understand it, it was given a fairly, what was considered to be a fairly quiet sector. Yes. The Canadians were inexperienced and they were, not, and there, there were some politics involved. So other than Hong Kong, where, you know, nobody came back to Canada to tell the lessons learned until after the war. And then Dieppe, which didn't go so well. It's the first time that are basically a raw army is committed to combat in, in that war, right? Yes, absolutely. So it's absolutely fascinating from that point of view. And you're you're presenting this as a, uh, was that in 2019 that you did the, you use Husky as an exercise, Robert? Well, I've used Husky as an exercise since about 2011, actually, at various institutions. At CFC, um, the, first, the first year we did it was, I believe, 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe late 2020, actually. Um, it was it was one of the pandemic ones that that I've I've got a I've got a, a panoply of of pandemic games now that I've deli- I've d- uh, designed and delivered um, exclusively online. Um, and and uh, the Husky one, which at, at, at CFC we called Joint X for Joint Exercise, was uh, was one of those. Um, but I it started it started uh, for me. Actually, not 2011. I guess it was 2012. Um, was when I I went on a battlefield tour. Um, I was sponsored. I was a grad student at the time, and I was sponsored by the Laurier by by Terry Cop in the Laurier Center, right. um, who who would who would periodically send grad students along on this trip. Um, that was done by University of New Brunswick, um, the Gregg Center, um, and led by by Professor Lee Windsor, who's a, a good friend of mine, um, has become become a very uh, a very good friend of mine over the over the years, and uh. He he does a he does a really good staff tour a, a really good staff ride if you ever get the chance um if you have not already anyone anyone listening if you ever get a chance to go on one of these greg center tours of italy or sicily with lee windsor do it it is uh, it has my full recommendation um and it was uh, it was uh, two weeks two weeks spent retracing the path of first division um um up up uh, Pequino and uh, and uh, through the center of the island with close analysis of um what what was happening on the ground like what the events were but actually looking at the ground that was taking place on like oh yeah okay well there's um there's it, it, it's it was a real eye-opener for me in terms of like being able to see what was happening on the ground kind of really changes your perspective of of what was possible and it it, it, it throws 
a lot of criticisms of these uh, of, of these campaigns into uh, into fairly fairly stark light as well because um, it, it it shows it shows what was what was possible what was what was what was frankly impossible um and when i got back from from sicily i was really kind of inspired to try to uh to try to capture some parts of that and at that time i was a graduate student at queen's university i had just been given my own class um it was a a history 476 canada at war class and it was uh i i was just handed this course and said okay you can do whatever you want with it and i said well okay i'm going <laughs> to i'm going to run a game i'm going to make a game and um, at that point, it was a. Um, it started off as a sort of an introduction to military history and military uh, military affairs, largely for well, entirely for for. Okay, that's not true. Almost entirely for civilians. We did have a few um, uh, people who were from RMC who would who would come over and take classes at at Queens um, sometimes. So there were, and we had reservists. So there were people with military experience, but it was mostly civilians who um, had very little exposure to the military and very little background knowledge to draw upon. And so the idea of trying to take a really complex campaign and have a break it down in a way that um that the students will kind of understand okay this is like this is the problem um this is like the the the, the real problem of of uh, military affairs and what 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 we did was um uh, i did initially was not have it as really an opposed exercise um with with i for one thing i i've always kind of um launched a little at um at the the appropriateness of having anyone play the nazis especially like in a, in a professional educational point of view like it, it's it, it's kind of getting into some slightly dodgy territory um and um i i wanted to avoid that so what i did was i i made everybody into teams and or put, put the put the class into teams and we had a um and each team represented essentially a different component um of the invasion one was representing the, the british seventh the, the british eighth army one was representing u.s seventh army one was representing the air force um the navy um uh the logistics and military government and and civilian management was also was also modeled on there and the challenge was to have each of these teams come up with their own plan for the invasion of husky based upon based upon their reading of the of the of some of some good histories of this like try to uh try to come up with your own plan first of all your own team in isolation then bring all the teams together and basically show what a mass massive cluster frack this is when everybody is trying to pull in different directions and everyone has their own agenda to that they're they're that they're trying trying to uh um that they're trying to that they're trying to trying to push and that for it's not it wasn't a war game in terms of the of of, of like a detailed modeling out of 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 the campaign in any sense what it was was an introduction to some of the main sources of friction in military operations because the in many ways with with operation husky the um the allies were potentially their own worst enemies and um the uh the 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 actual fighting for the capture of sicily um once they are ashore it's it's not it's not a it's not a um it's not predetermined, but it, it's very unlikely if the Axis was unable to stop the Allies on the beaches. Very unlikely that they were going to be able to ever hold the island for for any period of time, and that was that was just a a consequence of the of the larger strategic picture at that point 
correct, I think. Um, so the, the my my initial my initial uh, plan with the, with the Husky war uh, war game um, or simulation, whatever you want to call it, was to was to try to model that kind of friction. I, I used that at Queens several times. Um, my I used it at uh, at RMC to try to uh, to try to show some different aspects of uh, of, uh, of Husky. Uh, it, it was kind of a modular approach. So we could we could bring in different aspects we wanted emphasized, whether we wanted more granularity on the military side or wanted uh, more granularity on, say, things like military government and and those sorts of planning for occupation and uh, and uh, and control of the civilian population after the invasion. Mm-hmm. Um, my my wife, Dr. Claire Cookson Hills, taught um, a military history class at Queens um, uh, sometime after after I left, and um, and she and I redeveloped the game for in in a great deal more detail um, over over the course of those years. And then um, after the pandemic uh, began then, and we were looking for some good material for to use at uh, the Canadian Forces College, we, we, I rolled it out again there in a, in a heavily modified form to try to, um, to try to capture, uh, try to, to try to try to capture um, again, some of those, some of those tensions. And, and let me, let me know if I'm going on too much with this, but there are uh, in, within the, curriculum at the at the forces college there was a there was a gap between some of the the courses that i was responsible for um for overseeing um on one hand there's the uh, component capabilities course where um the officers who are all uh, on the on the on the junior program, the the joint command and staff program, uh, they're all of level of of major or command commander, I believe it is in yeah. the in the in the navy, um, and they they have a component capabilities course where they try to learn and try to develop some empathy for the other for the other branches of the service for the other components, right? Um, and this is it, it it surprised me, and I think it surprises uh, surprises a lot of a lot of uh, military officers as well, just how little they all know about each other being. Coming up in 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 silos, whether it's from within a regiment or within the air force or or a navy, and they often have no contact with one another. And and CFC was often the first time when they would have a lot of sustained contact with people from um, from the other services. And so the component capabilities course was all about trying to familiarize them with this. And then they move from that into the operational planning course, which is really as much about training them in um, operational planning process and and so that the higher level. Uh, functions um, for for staff headquarters as as much as it is it's more about training than education but they had to go from um, barely knowing anything about the components and just being introduced to that to having to plan complex joint operations using all of them together and there, there was there was a, a gap there about the actual experience of joint operations mm-hmm. and everyone was kind of fishing around for ideas well what can we do for this like aha I, I know of a really good joint operation that we could throw in there to to study and I've got a game based upon it so mm-hmm. that was the that was the birth of joint X at um, at CFC it started off as as again a, a kind of a planning planning exercise um, small piece planning um where where uh, the point was to um was to uh, uh was to really um uh, create friction between the staffs and to and to have them with multiple goals that they're trying to pursue is really as much a negotiation game as anything else to try to negotiate um what you want the uh, what you want the, uh, the the invasion of sicily to look like because they're the um, historically speaking the way it turned out was not again not 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 predestined it was not necessarily the best way to do it um it was not optimal necessarily in any way. It was the result of very specific people getting their way, and there were uh, and 
and um, the result of uh, perhaps bolder decisions not being taken for under, very understandable reasons. Um, and it's it's kind of fun to go through that uh, that process. Um, this this past year uh, in 2022, we did it again. Only this time, we actually had an opposing force. And we turned it into more of a war game. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the we had everybody broken up into teams, and they had to come up with their plans. But we actually the number one comment we always got for whenever I've run this is that we want to play this game out. We want to be able to we want to be able to fight this invasion out and see what the plan would be. Um, and this year, I had the capacity to to do that. Usually, I usually it's it's usually this, this is being done for hundreds of students, so you can't. It, it's really it's really difficult to to uh, to go beyond the planning stage. This year, I was teaching a course at CFC on. Um, that was it was all about wargaming. It was it was actually a dedicated wargaming class, and I uh, had uh, uh, some some twenty uh, very very bright students, um, and they uh, they provided a cadre that could actually be the opposing force. And we we ran. I, I was I was a little. Um, I, I I took all the. I, I I abstracted it so it was more like red and blue than it was like allies and axis because again I the the, the Nazi thing um, does not I mean it's it's it it it, it, it's, it was going to be something of a distraction and what I really wanted them to focus on was on not necessarily how it played out historically but the decisions that have to be made um, the the negotiation process um, and what what that can look like in a joint operation how you kind of how you get those how you synchronize things to try to um, maximize your advantage uh, vice an enemy that may or may not know where you're coming from you you don't know what they know you don't and then trying to simulate that fog of war it, it was a very rich experience this year tremendous it was a colossal amount of work and my students did very very well at it but it was uh it was a lot of fun too yeah (laughs) sorry that was a long-winded explanation no it was fascinating and and i I mean how you know i mean how much would i have enjoyed being a fly on the wall during that uh and and the, the what you're describing in terms of um a game that that focuses on process and negotiation and friction that sounds a lot like the to me like the kind of mega games that uh, people like Rex Bryan run at uh, McGill, you know, yeah. um, and I I can see the value of that when you've got um, you know because I have I've had friends in the military who who've gone through CFC. Um, you probably know some of them, but um, yeah, you're right. You've you've got uh, people from all the services and all the trades, you know, um, interacting with each other and. So did you put like the the RCN guys in charge of the Navy and the the you know the woman from the Air Force in charge of the Air Force or well what we what we did this was for the there's 120 students in JCSP so and and they were broken down into 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 their own syndicates of roughly roughly ten people. What we did was we put them in twindicates. So you had like so you had two syndicates, and um, within those twenty people, we created we created the teams. And so there was actually, I believe, like six separate games being run, um, and each of them having their own their own opposing their own opposing force. And we had some we had facilitators in there to help help guide people along, um, and, uh, and 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 so it was. And so we had six radically different outcomes based. Uh, no no two no two games were were really anything alike um I, I posted some twitter threads that had like the outcomes and the maps and everything from from each one of those uh from each one of those uh, uh joint x um run-throughs and it was um there were they were really quite <laughs> there were a lot of fun and then um the the next week we did what we called joint x2 um which had been the uh the idea of the um of the previous director of programs um colonel uh, uh barbara honig um who was um who's a, a sci-fi buff and she 
she she she let me um run with the idea of okay we take operation husky um and 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 the uh and, and joint operations and that that's all very well and good for um for the for the air force for the navy for 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 land for logistics um and for special forces but what 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 about how do we project that into the future? How do we layer in things like space and cyber capabilities? And so, Joint X Two is basically running the invasion of Sicily only with um in a, in a deeply ahistorical way, only with layered in cyber and space capabilities for both mm-hmm. both the both the, the the red and the blue forces. Mm-hmm. Um, and see how that just not because not because it it happened like that. Of course, it didn't. Um, it it and and the historian in me was kind of cringing, but at the same time, um, what we were trying to communicate to the students was how. How, how did these how do these technologies disrupt things? What do they what do they change? What stays the same? Like what 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 were what considerations were you um were were, were different in the second run through than they were in the first one? That that was the really important thing. Um again, not not so much, not so much because the the, the, the actual results of the of, of these games aren't really in question. I think that's what kind of differentiates these sorts of games from the ones played by the the Canadian military in the 70s and 80s, the big simulations. They're very they're very outcome focused. This is more about the learning process mm-hmm. of the of the participants, and that that's what I see wargaming in in professional mm-hmm. military education as being all about. The outcome doesn't matter nearly as much about as as what you can pick up along the way. And I I, I think I think we I think we got there. I think we got there with a lot of a lot of people. The feedback was uh, was uh, was really quite strong. Yeah, yeah, um, and and I, I really appreciate what you said about <clears throat> making it red and blue versus axes versus allies. I mean. You know the problem with any kind of World War II gaming is you you've always got those guys in the on the other side, right? And everybody um, everybody in their dog loves D Day in Normandy, you know, because it's such a rich part of the Canadian military story. But the problem is then you've got to put those guys in the you know you've got to, the twelfth SS have got to be on the table at some point. And I'm I always look askance at somebody who takes far too much pleasure in painting their dot camo ss guys and their tiger tanks and stuff because it's i mean unless you're just using them for target practice and enjoying the the pleasure of knocking them off the table then yeah it's becomes problematic for sure and i guess with sicily i mean the the german objective was always just basically to fight it as you said once they realized that they were facing an irresistible force that was how do we use the forces we have and the terrain we have to buy as much time as possible and make them pay for every village and every pass right so it's you could almost do that in a programmed way you know if you have so many allied companies stacking up against a german defense they'll at some point they'll with the withdraw they'll withdraw to the next bound right yeah and the germans had tried the, the after the after the allies got ashore the german plan that what they hoped to do was set up effectively a a winter line in the uh in the northeast corner of mm-hmm. of uh, of sicily where it gets really mountainous um yeah. kind of around the around the base of uh, uh kind of anchored in catania and in the northeast corner on one side and mm-hmm. and um the what part of what the first canadian division does is they break the joint of that of that uh, of that planned uh, uh defensive line and the german the german hope was that they could hold that through the winter and that that was where they were they were going to that was where they were going to be able to keep the allies it's a very strong position very very strong position i'm trying my ignorance are we talking about leon forte 
Yeah, Liam Forte and uh, Astro and yeah, yeah. and uh, and that and if if you if you take a look at that, especially the the layered defenses, the balance back behind that, oh, that that terrain is that terrain is is uh, is extreme would be extremely challenging and was extremely challenging to fight in, um, and it would have made an excellent place to hold. And and part of what um, I think part of the the, the credit that Canadians are, are, are do not usually get is that the, the first division does smash the hinge point of that of that defensive line makes it so you can't hold that line um as the the americans do a, a great god a great job at uh, trina and uh, just north of that as well um with uh with similar things and it's 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 really it's really hard fighting and it's uh uh it's really it's really pivotal um and it gets kind of it gets it gets kind of lost in the story of sicily because it's the the a lot of you know the carlo d'estes of the world will will say that well we should have we should have gone for the straits right away we should have cut the straits and and trapped all of those those german divisions on the on the island well there's an entire german flak division that was sitting on the straits of messina it's, it's suicide yeah. to try to run ships or aircraft over there in any serious way it's yeah. i mean it was it was one of the most heavily heavily protected areas of the world at that point in terms of anti-air yeah. defenses it's yeah. it's not not, not a simple task and so the plan that they ultimately come to was a very was a very conservative one it was one that that maximized that, that maximized force concentration um and that uh, would, would try to be logistically sustainable um so that they could make sure that they got ashore um that was that was the whole thing if they if they ended up with another dieppe in sicily um uh if the germans uh if the germans found out where they were coming and and actually had the panzers on the beach there to meet them and push them back into the sea then that was a disaster and that was like basically the one thing that couldn't happen with sicily the allies knew that if they got ashore they could they, they could overwhelm the they could overwhelm them that wasn't really in question the, the the question mark is um how do you make sure that you get ashore safely um and and you do it by you do it by by concentrating your forces in in, in the southern part of the of the of the of the island you do it by um landing all of your anti-tank assets first and putting up this hard um a porcupine shell around the landing zone so that you have the uh and basically sitting there and waiting for the for the for the tanks to come rolling down the hills at you as as they did um as they did against the the, the british and the americans the yeah. the canadians were were shielded but it was it was a possibility that the germans could have struck um Bikino as well yeah yeah so i can't resist just seeing as we've been talking about capturing one island let's talk about another island that's in the news right now so you and i today on twitter both read uh, sebastian bay's uh, uh tweets on the uh the recent uh china u.s taiwan war game that was done in washington i think the last few days mm -hmm. and uh i i guess the question is for you as a professional um robert what were you uh, what interested you in 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 the process that sebastian was describing it because you know it for me as a layman, what what strikes me as interesting is once you're, you're trying to model the the Chinese military, which has all these new capabilities that are that are at some point kind of notional, right? Because you don't really know exactly, you know, does their new technology work? Is it is it going to fall flat on its face as the Russians, you know, the much vaunted modernized Russian army collapsed in the Ukraine in the first few months of this year? Uh, so, what sort of things were you looking at uh, in, in reading between? You know, reading Sebastian's comments on that. On well, that. 
Sebastian is uh, as a force to be reckoned with, and I, I've got I've got all the time in the world for uh, for for Sebastian Bay um, from a, from a wargaming perspective. He's like one of one of our generation's uh, uh, best voices, and his emphasis upon wargaming as uh, as something to understand human decisions is, mm. I think, absolutely spot on. And that was what he was really emphasizing there: mm. is that when um, wargaming is arguably as a professional tool not 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 as a hobby tool but as a professional tool it is arguably at its weakest when you're trying to um when you're trying to model like like really technical stuff um there's, there's entire processes for for modeling and simulation that that are really not war games that you can you can do to get a pretty pretty accurate idea of um of uh, of equipment and and new technical capabilities but war games are about decisions and it is about um not so much you know, how, how many missiles the Chinese are going to have, but more like what if they have that number of missiles and they have this confidence in them, what does that do to the decision space? What, what does that, um, how, how does that change the, uh, how does that, that change the, uh, the, the equilibrium there? And I think, I think that's really, that's, I, I really, I really strongly agree with that, that that is, that is where, especially for professional, uh, for professional military education, that is where you're going to get the most bang for your buck with board games. Um, less about a, a whole lot less about the outcome and more about um more about trying to trying to model or try to th and think about think about decisions both ourselves and the adversaries and it, it is it is it is much harder to think about adversary decision spaces and i think we, we've seen that not not just with um not just with uh with uh with the chinese and 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 taiwan and that war game but uh, with a lot of what's come out of ukraine um and and uh and uh that that hot war is that it is um we've really had an opportunity to kind of uh not just see see russian capabilities but hold a mirror up to ourselves about our assumptions about russian capabilities and that i think is something that is is going to ripple through the um not just wargaming community but but the historiography as well looking back um we can again going back to those 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 massive simulations at fort frontenac i mean if there's a lot of assumptions that had to be baked in there about, like, say, the competence of the Red Army logistical system, that, um, that, that and the ability of the of the of the of the Red Army to to keep itself supplied and to keep itself um, to keep itself uh, keep itself moving. That um, now look foolish. Uh, those 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 uh, those sorts of uh, those sorts of assumptions, and that that there are there are readiness issues um, that run deep within the Russian military that have gone um un not not that everyone was unaware of them but they have largely not been modeled and i know that they weren't modeled back in the in the in the 1980s either in in part because um it would have uh it, it, the the i i i think that the results of the the game would have been would have would have um would have been rather different i think than than uh, than they were um so yeah i think that and and the um the decisions that are made based upon the um the the that we have been making um that uh based upon those assumptions i think are, are something that's that that really fascinates me I, i've tried to capture some of that in the more recent war games that i did at uh, at cfc as well although they, those were being kind of redesigned um in the on the fly as the as the ukraine war was was unfolding and so i'm not sure the first stab at it really captured everything that that needed to be said on the topic 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's true. And I, I, one of the things that I was thinking of as I was reading Sebastian's comments about his own game, Littoral Commander, which um, I would love, I mean, I've only heard about it, uh, but it, it looks absolutely fascinating. And, and as a training tool, it's really interesting. His conversation with uh, Jay Arnold on another hobby podcast talked about how Littoral Commander is being pushed down to, you know, very, very small uh, unit level uh, training. You can get a bunch of Marines you know, in a rifle company and, and uh, naval, naval infantry. We're not allowed to call them Marines or oh. he's not allowed to call them Marines. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's an, it sounds like an amazing training tool, but one of the things he said that it really struck me was in his model, every American unit has the same capability, right? Like a frigate is a frigate, a destroyer is a destroyer, a Marine company is a Marine company. They all have the same, you know, it'd be like in the old, um, remember in the old, um, hex encounter days you know you always had like your combat factor your defense factor your movement factor yeah. and always the same depending on if it was infantry or armored or whatever but do you remember early on in covid when that u.s aircraft carrier captain was pilloried because he he wanted to take his his uh, his ship offline because of covid right and he was worried about yeah. some sailors dying and you know i mean from a as a chaplain, when I, because I, I, I used to counsel commanders about ethical choices, I thought, what a fascinating case that was, right? So here's a guy who was like, you know, no, I don't want my sailors dying needlessly. You know, we should take them all off the ship and sanitize it. And, you know, God bless them. What a, what a courageous decision to put your hand up and potentially end your career doing that. So now let's say that same aircraft carrier, you know, is being said, okay, now you're going to be part of a task force. You've got to interdict the Japanese, the Chinese invasion of Taiwan and guess what you might get sunk uh, at the very least you'll probably lose 60% of your aircraft and pilots on day one or day two um, go ahead go go for it you know or it's day three of this that same operation and that same carrier has lost you know 60% of its capabilities you know and it's still in the fight how does it fight you know how, how do you rate its effectiveness and the you have a whole peacetime navy that's suddenly being told, um, you know, you're half of you are probably going to die in the first two or three days of this conflict, right? How do you feel about that? <laughs> that's it's it's. It, what, what, what does that do for your motivation? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it the modeling of 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 morale and that those human human dimensions, especially when you start to get to like really large scale things like an aircraft carrier. How do you model that for for thousands of people? I mean, you you, you can't in some ways, but I, I think there's there's ways to try to to try to uh, to try to creatively um, get around that and to 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 include more factors in there. Um, the, I think the the perennial problem in war games is is the is the issue of overcomplicating it and how much is how much detail is is too much before before you um, before you spend six months um, modeling six hours of combat, um, which I'm, I'm sure you can do with great fidelity, and you can bring in all sorts of morale and and motivation factors when you've got that kind of granularity. Um, although, uh, to be honest, I'm not sure that they did. I think I, I think that's uh, I, I I don't think that was one of their one of their key uh, one of their key takeaways um, or one of their their key factors within in that particular game. Um, but for for a game that can be played in any any reasonable amount of time, how do you how do you go about how do you go about doing that? And there's um, I, I've I've I, I've been I've 
I try to keep an open mind with mechanics uh, when it when it comes to uh, when it comes to, comes to game design. And for um, for the latest iteration of the ones that did at Canadian Forces College, I really wanted uh, to to kind of get away from that. You know, every unit has has the same value, and so I introduced. Um, it's, oh, this is extremely nerdy, but I I I, I basically gave every unit its own character sheet um, that it, it could be used. And a lot of this happens behind the scenes, um, so that the, the the actual players don't have to worry too much about it. But it had each each unit had its own essential ability score that that it corresponded with one of the domains, whether it's it's uh, air air land sea um, uh, cyber space um, info were, were were all included there, and its own um, uh, operational functions. So um, act um, and uh, was it. Uh, I've, I've, I've only been gone from CFC for a month and I've already forgotten all the operational functions, but there's five of them. And so it's basically, you know, combining that do the domain with the, uh, with the, uh, uh, with the, with the function. And that's the score that you end up using. So you get some, some granularity there in terms of the, in terms of the strength, you can, you can build some, some pretty good, um, some pretty good effects into that in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of uh, units being able to having different strengths in different areas. Um, and you can do, you can do similar things like that with morale. That, that system was actually, actually taken from um or the, the inspiration that I taken was from the uh legend of the five rings role playing game because that's that's very much that that style of uh of of combining um of combining the your 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 ability score with uh with some kind of skill that you have it's dungeons and dragons isn't too far off of that as well and the um and 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 i, I was very i was very pleased with the results and how it got down it it, it made it made the um it made it gave you a lot more granularity with the units without without bogging things down too much um to make it so as to make it uh, uh unplayable so not not to say that that's that's the solution but i think that casting a wide net in terms of inspiration for what uh what a designer can can draw upon for these uh these these particular games is is yeah. uh, it's both fun and uh and and really has a lot of potential uh i like the idea of the character sheet my mind went to an old um spi game pantagroup gadarian where the, the all of the Russian units are are inverted, right? So, and they all have, and, and you just pick them randomly and they have random combat values. And so it sort of simulates from it, because it, the game is very, very German centric. And it, it makes a great, um, makes a great solitaire game because you, you never know the, the quality of a Russian unit until you bump up to it, right? And it could be crap or it could be like, really really powerful and and uh it made me wonder about a the possibility of having a game where where both sides the 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 actual effectiveness of the unit is unknown to the commander until they actually start bumping into each other and then you mm -hmm. turn the counters over and you suddenly you have varying you know maybe a within a, a range of capabilities right you have a yeah. you know like the russian vdv at hostamel right everyone thought you know those guys in the blue berets you know oh, they'll 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 take that airport in two minutes. Well, no, <laughs> didn't happen. Yeah. The, the idea, the imperfect information about your own, basically if, if, about, about the hand that you have as well is, is yeah. just as a game mechanic is I think like really tantalizing. Like it has a lot of, it adds a lot of, um, a lot of uh, drama to the games and a lot of, a lot of uncertainty. Um, and, and we'll, we'll, um, we'll shape, we'll shape decision-making more than if you have perfect information about, uh, or well, if not, 
not shape it more. It will shape it differently than if you have perfect information. And, and that's just, just one of those things about, yeah, with, with, with war game design, you always have to choose what you're going to abstract away and, and make, make very, very simple and what you're going to focus on in a lot of detail. And for, for, for games that, you know, if you're for, for ones that are trying to simulate the Ukraine war um, and, and, and try to capture some of those dynamics, things like imperfect information, things like um, uh, uh, collapses in, in readiness um, need to be, are, are, like that that's kind of that in large part that's that's the story of the early part of the war and trying to um capture that even if if other uh more traditional aspects like you know combat power and so forth are, are abstracted away i think i think that that would be really yeah. um I'm, I'm conscious we've been talking for more than an hour and there's so much i'd love to cover with you robert um we'll I'm, I'm good for i'm good for a little longer if you are yeah i i'm i'm gonna try to land the plane and, and maybe we'll um we'll have to get a hold of you uh uh, down the road when you're settled in Australia. But I, I wanted to ask you, just based on what we're all seeing um, uh, from the Ukraine, you know, you know, and it's it's hard to it's hard to get really, really good unbiased information. But I mean, I've been following people like Mick Ryan and Mark Hurtling, you know, the actual, you know, senior military leaders who seem to know what they're talking about. Uh, and of course, the Ukrainians are playing such a masterful social media game that you have to you you have to you one admires them but you have to think okay am i being told the whole story from ukrainian sources but what what do you think um the middle bid career officers that you are familiar with what lessons do you think they're drawing from from this war right now i think the the one the the, the people i've talked to um, and the officers I've, I've interacted with and in, 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 in seminar and in seminar and in less, less formal avenues here, I think that the, the idea of readiness and not taking things for granted is, is certainly for the, for the early part of the war. Now that it's kind of, now, it's, now that the, 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 the war has become less dramatic, and I think that is very much a, a Russian response to the uh, Ukrainian information superiority, the Russians are now attempting to make the war as boring as possible, um, as, as well as uh, making it more attritional and more uh, you know, blasting their way forward incrementally. It, it makes, for, makes for a much more boring war than what we saw earlier on, and that means that international attention is flagging, um, and, and if, if not international support, then they're not enjoying this the Ukrainians are not enjoying the spotlight. So that that's one that's one major aspect of the information side of things that I think is 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 getting attention. Um, but the other part is is the idea of of uh, of readiness and the idea that um, the there there's so many there's so many failures on the the this part of the Russians to understand themselves, let alone their enemy. That it was um, that the, uh, the so 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 many corners cut in terms of maintenance. So many um, so many problems that were created uh, that that could have been easily dealt with at an early stage that snowballed into um, into you know what was supposedly one of the greatest mechanized armies on the world that was unable to leave the roads and was ended up um, trapped on the roads because if they left the roads, they would blow out all of their tires and would uh, would lose all of their all of their vehicles um, before the Ukrainians even got them. So it was a uh, I think that 
that the 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 importance of logistics, the importance of um, of, uh, of of supply, um, of of not taking these things for granted. I, I think that that is where a lot that's where a lot of the conversations that I saw um, were 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 focused around, and where there's this new appreciation that um, with for all of the flash of these big maneuvers and the and you know landings at the 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 Kiev airport and, and and so forth, like they they were completely undone by these prosaic mundane things that the Russian army had failed at comprehensively over the space of a decade. Yeah. And that's, that's a, that's a hard, that's a, that's a, that's a really important lesson I think for mid career officers to take is that like the, the, the failure did not start uh, at the beginning of the war. It, it reached far, far back. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so that, that was, that, that's, that's what I took in uh, from, from, from a lot of it early on and where a lot of the conversations that um, I was a part of uh, were, uh, uh, were, were going as, as well as some more specific stuff about artillery and, and um, some, some more, some more tactical things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I think back, Back to um, the Jim Dunnigan era when you know companies like SPI were were trying to model the, the Soviet military and it and, and it's funny because uh, we've talked with some of our guests James and I in past about how the the idea of Cold War gone hot is still crazily popular right now in, in the miniatures side of the wargaming hobby you know everybody now wants to build 1980s armies and have you know phalanxes of leopards versus T80s and BMPs and stuff but you know, we all thought that those, um, you know, I mean, there was a different, there were, there was a stereotype of the, the callous commissars driving on, you know, unmotivated conscripts, but you never thought that the Russian mafia would have so hollowed out the, the, the Warsaw Pact from the inside out that their tires would have gone or they would have sold all of their reserve fuel, right, on the black market. Yeah. You just didn't think of that happening. And now you just sort of thought that it would be this massive weight of metal and firepower rolling down on NATO and could NATO manage it? Um, and you never, so yeah, you're right, readiness. And and then I guess the other thing is we were all so fascinated by the Russian buildup, you know, and how many of these battalion tactical groups or whatever they were called, they could bring to bear that we never thought that the Ukrainians would be busy planning their defense, you know, and, and wargaming their own contingencies, right? I'm sure, I'm sure that they had you know, uh, they had enough time to implement a pretty detailed defensive plan that they'd thought through they, very carefully. Very, very careful. They they had eight years um, to, uh, to 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 plan to plan their defense down to the meter, and they have they've they've done an excellent job of it. One of the things that uh, I think that the Canada can take a lot of pride in is Operation Unifier, because yeah. um, the and and the the training mission to Ukraine and and, and early on when you, when the war first started out, there was a lot of there's a lot of outpouring from military officers that that I knew about like. Like this is like these are these are the people that we know that we trained. Like they're going out there and they're they're going to die. Like this is this is going to be a traumatic event. Yeah. Um, and now there's a lot of pride that you know the people we trained uh, are, are are out there you know kicking Russia's ass. And this is like it, this was a and and it was I think that all of the right decisions were made uh, in terms of what what how they were going to train the Ukrainian army it was it was about more 
training them in the fundamentals of how a Western army would fight um, rather than trying to just, you know, give them the latest equipment and, and, uh, and then, you know, show them how to use it and then, then walk away. It was, it was much more hands-on um, teaching them about mission command, teaching them, but teaching them about um, ways of fighting that are going to, that are going to be far more effective um, against the Russians than, than trying to mimic the Russians style of, of very centralized, uh, very centralized command. And Canada played a big part of that. And I think that, I think that Canadian, um, Canadian officers ought to be extremely proud of themselves and the work that they did. I, I, I hope that, I hope that someone does a history of Operation Unifier at some point, whether it's a, a whole book or an article or something. I think that, I think that that. Um, so someone, someone, someone who's bilingual or trilingual, you know, English, French, and Ukrainian, um, should uh, should probably uh, should probably take that up um, at some point. And I think I think that would be that would be a hell of a story in uh, in the context of what came after. Yeah, I would read it for sure. I I had a very small role in that myself as we uh, were training uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, military chaplains. They were standing up a professional chaplaincy, which they hadn't really had. And uh, I had the privilege of meeting a bunch of them when they came through our school in Borden. And sadly, a few of them are, are have since died. But I was, yeah, I think of them a lot for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I guess maybe as, as, as we, we pr probably should start wrapping up. But I wanted, there, there's a lot that I would have liked to have talked to you about, uh, particularly about the, from your two books, uh, Canadians Under Fire and um, uh, Strangers in Arms, um, how you represent the, the Canadian Army, the historical Canadian Army from World War II, on the in a simulation, depending on I guess it would depend on what year you did. That would be a fascinating conversation in itself, and I, I'd like to I'd like to bring you back as a guest sometime to do that. I, I wanted though maybe just to finish with a more general question, Robert. Um, having sort of talked about uh, wargaming as a training tool and as a you know helping people make decisions and focus on goals in the professional capacity. There's also the the gaming part of it, right? There's the there's the you know there's the pleasure of trying to solve a problem, of working with colleagues, you know, the, seeing a, seeing your plan come together. I I guess is there still that kind of gaming aesthetic or gaming enjoyment in on the, the professional side that there is on the hobby side. I, ab absolutely. Certainly in the games that um, certainly the games that, that I run in, in part because they're so inspired by hobby war gaming yeah. um, and, and that, that uh, they're there. And, and, and in part because this is um, I, 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 I believe that people will learn a lot more when they have fun. And that is just at the, at the core of my own, of my own, uh, my own, uh, teaching philosophy is that if, if they're, if you're bored to tears, you're probably going to tune out. And if you're having a good time with this, if you're, if you're solving a problem, if you are engaging with, um, if you're engaging with a red with a red force out there that is trying to thwart you, um, and it, it gets people engaged, it gets people connected. That was really important during the pandemic, um, uh, like never before, because uh, the CFC went um, entirely online um, for uh, for the past two years. We, we we did a crash transition to an online online teaching in March of 2020, and and have have gone back only periodically since then, and. Uh, uh, they'll be resuming in person uh, in in residence teaching, um, I believe, in in the fall this year. Um, 
uh, inshallah. But the uh, uh, the, um, the 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 one of the downsides of the virtual teaching is that you lack a lot of that connectedness that you would get with with uh, with students. You lack a lot of the social life, and I think that war games and you know these these uh, professional war games um, that substituted perhaps duller curriculum uh, elements uh, were were uh, were a, a big part in helping people connect. Um, I, I would hope so anyway. That was certainly my intention. And I certainly connected with the students more with these war games than with just about anything else. Um, and it was uh, it was a, a joy to run them. Um, the I, I, I won't I won't pretend that everybody loved them. Um, I know that there, there are some people who just hate games and um, and, and there there you can you can you can try but you're not going to reach everyone. But I think that that's also the same. The same is true with a lecture or a seminar or any other learning tool. And I think that gaming below Longs up there as a uh, at, at the as, as one of the highest levels of uh, of, of learning. Um, one of the most difficult to pull off. Um, it's it's not as it's not as easy as delivering a lecture, but it is it is it is so worth it. Um, in part because of that fellowship that it can it can help to foster. Wow. Yeah. And I guess a, a final closing question. You know, you've got a young family. You're moving to Australia. <laughs> you publish a bunch of books. You teach. Um, in your copious spare time, uh, is there is there anything that you're keeping that that's got you excited on the hobby side of uh, wargaming? That uh, things that you'd like to try or you'd like to buy or. Oh my god! Well, as I said, um, hey, I've I've recently gotten fairly deep into Warhammer, and that was uh, that was it was a it was a choice because I wanted something that was a very clear line for me, um, between between the between my professional work, um, and and the hobby. Because over the last two years of the pandemic, I uh, I let the two run into each other. So as if I wasn't with my if I wasn't doing something with my wife or my kids, I was working, and that was because the work was so much fun, and it was uh, it was you know designing games. Games. It was the stuff that I. It was the stuff that I love. But um, at at the end of that process, and and at the end of my time at CFC, I realized that you know I actually need a, a stricter work life balance there. And um, I, I enjoy I enjoy war games and wargaming so much that I, I want to maintain that as a hobby. So uh, a lot of the the Warhammer 40k is is that's 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 my speed, especially because of the uh, of the uh, uh, of the artistic side. I'm also looking forward to um, Littoral Commander, uh, getting my hands on uh, on a copy of that. I I think um, uh, I, I, I believe that there's a copy uh, waiting for me down in Australia already. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to see it before then. But I am I am really looking forward to um, to incorporating that. Um, we, we came within a hair's breadth of, of actually running a game of that for my students at uh, at CFC this year, um, only to fall afoul of um, of uh, uh, online security considerations um, for for running something through desktop or for through tabletop uh, simulator on, mm. on on Steam, um, which was a real shame because Sebastian was keen to come and, and run a game for us, and it would have been uh, would have been a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, there's uh, there's I, I think there, there there's there's so much. There's just so much out there from from uh, from a hobby perspective. I'm I'm I, I I'm really looking forward. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting my hands onto um, games that that do a better job of simulating logistics and supply. Um, I think a Quartermaster General series is um, it's is sort of the sort of a of a of a 
it, it's a it's a it's an easier way into that but there's some there's some games um out there that uh, I, I can't remember the, the name of them off the uh, top of my head but i've i've got on my list of ones that i need to you know acquire at all costs because they, this is going to do a really good job of of simulating uh, of simulating logistics um for the class that i ran at cfc this year um instead of having a, them write a paper at the end of it i had them um in teams design war games and um war games that they would want to professionally like that that were that were um, going to be professional assets for them in their careers. And we had some, oh, we had some, we just had some amazing, amazing games. We had um, a bunch of uh, Canadian artillery officers who um, designed a uh, designed a counter battery um, artillery fire game that can basically be played in the back of a truck um, in your in like uh, in the field with 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 nothing. And it was really it was really good. Um, there is a um, there's a, a, a intelligence officer training game that um, I'm going to try to uh, push forward um, to to get that to get that published and get that out to staff colleges because I think it 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 belongs it belongs there as a, as a training aid and there is another one that was a, a entirely a logistics and, and supply game that was based on snakes and ladders of all things but it was it was absolutely brilliant in terms of it i i i told them um that they should, they should if you're going to focus on supply and logistics you should abstract the combat part of it entirely and so it, it's it's just like moving along a pathway like snakes and ladders um like with with you know combat kind of randomly happening somewhere else but you have to uh, you have to deal with the the logistical and the and the and the supply and the administrative aspects of the combat that's happening and like the random events that are that are coming in and and, uh, and hitting you have to like you have to do it properly and and do proper planning and and projecting what your needs are going to be for like the next for the next push forward and you don't know what the results are going to be it was just it was just it was just great and i, I really hope that we can see some of those published and um get those uh, get those out there because they had they had some some terrific ideas and i I think there were there were ten games in all. I've only I've only talked about like three or four of them. There's there's a lot of a lot of really good stuff that came out there, and I think that's 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 the other part of the the, the joy of this for me is you know um, seeing being part of the creative process, and and I really I really hope to be able to help um, help those who are interested take the next steps with those uh, with those games. Well, that's great, and um, I'd really encourage you as well to you know not lose sight of Hill Seventy. I think that would be a Fantastic game because really I I can't think I I had somewhere around here I have a Vimy Ridge game that I have yet to, oh yeah here I here. oh really I have not heard of that one no uh, it's an old game by uh, Kerry Anderson Kerry huh. Anderson was part of something called the Canadian uh, War Games Group which was um, I think they were Western Canadian um, I haven't opened it yet but it's uh, it's a tactical sort of I don't know not tactical but it's an operational game. Um, Vimy Ridge, but I, I don't really know of that many Canadian First World War War games. So um yeah, crack on with that. I, I don't I don't know I don't know of any <laughs> I don't know of any. No, the the Hill Seventy game. Um, I, I I had originally um, been working on it in as uh, as something for the um, Battle of Hill Seventy Memorial Project, which is a, yeah. a, a private foundation that I've been um, heavily involved in. That that um, that that that's where the the Through Their Eyes book uh, originated. Uh, was, yeah. with the the education work I did for them, and they. Um, I had envisioned this as, as kind of a solitaire game that was uh, very much like you were talking about with the Eastern Front game, with where it, 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 you the um, you have a you have a tactical problem in front of you, and the forces that are thrown against you are really are are, are randomized. It was really really 
uh, based on on card draws, um, and and you still had to uh, you still had to to to, to deal with the problem with yeah. an evolving tactical problem um, while minimizing trying to minimize your own losses. And it, I, I I like the idea of that. It doesn't um, it wouldn't it wouldn't be about you know simulating the Battle of Hill seventy, uh, which which is I mean a, a, like many battles of the First World War is um, uh, can best be described as a um, a sudden explosion of violence that you know moves the lines a few a few yards and then settles in for a lot of killing and like there's uh, it, it's it, it's it's a very interesting tactical problem in in a lot of ways and especially in the in the in the bigger picture but on a on a on a on a level that I think many hobby war gamers would be interested in is also kind of um kind of suffocating in terms of the the limitations that are imposed upon uh, upon any of those scenarios um so yeah it, it's a it's a challenging one I, I really would like to, to to bring that to light eventually mm. yeah I would, I would i would look forward to that well thank you so much robert really really appreciate your time it's um i'm kind of running up against a hard limit here if i right. not to fall asleep uh, i did want to <laughs> i did want to say before we we say goodnight we have a tradition on the podcast of um letting our guests choose uh, a piece of military music from the uh canadian military tradition like a regimental march or something and i was going to suggest in your case of the regimental march of the patricius because you, we were talking before we started recording about their history and how you're working on volume. yes i am i am the uh i'm the official uh regimental historian for princess yeah. patricia's canadian light infantry i am currently uh partway through uh the second draft of um of their the sixth the sixth volume of their history covering the years 1958 to 2000 which is uh in part why i can speak so fluently about a particular war game that happened at fort frontenac in the early 1980s is because it's part of the history. Um, it was the the the, the Blue Force commander was um, was a notable Patricia, and um, so the, that's that's a part of the uh, a part of the history that I've been delving into, um, and my own bias in making sure that you know war games get uh, get a little more a little more uh, play in the history than they might otherwise is uh, showing through here. Um, that I, I would I would love to select uh, love to select that as the uh, as the as the piece of music. Well, there you go. Perfect. Speaking of notable tradition, uh, Patricia, did you ever have the pleasure of meeting uh, Dan Drew? Um, no, I, uh, uh, I have listened to many interviews with him. I have not had the pleasure of meeting him yet. I'll, I'll tell you a very quick story about him. He was the, uh, when I was posted at, uh, CFB Suffield in the, I guess I was 2010, 2011, just as Afghanistan was winding down, he was, command, he was the military commander, of the, uh, DRDC facility there, Defense Research and Development Canada. And. You know, it was funny because here was this guy who, you know, was, you know, bullet headed, cigar chewing, you know, over the top soldier who was actually much smarter than he let on and uh, in charge of all these these scientists. And but he decided that was kind of boring. So he, he was able to wangle a tour, uh, one of the last omelet tours back to Afghanistan. And, and uh, he said, you know, bad rate, there's still some of them that haven't been killed and I'm going to go do it. And uh so he said, uh, "I want you to uh, I want you to verify me as sane, so because you got to do this interview, right?" And I said, "Sir, there's no way I'm getting in between Dan Drew and Afghanistan. If you want to go, sir, God bless you." Because <laughs> I was terrified of the guy. Anyway, yeah, he was a funny duck, but he had some very interesting ideas about robots. And he, I remember asking him once if he thought a robot would take away the any of the military glamour of you know the profession of arms and he said hell no if i could send a robot over the hill and see what's there 
so my guys don't get killed fucking yeah i'll do it and i was like <laughs> you know he was an interesting guy anyway so we'll use that as uh, as our march out robert on behalf of uh, james and myself thanks so much for spending the time with us and our listeners tonight and uh, i wish you a very very uh, successful move to australia and um just ask that uh we check in with you down the road Oh, uh, thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to, to to speak with you, and I would I would absolutely love to come back and uh, I, I feel like finish our conversation. I say I feel like there's there's so much more that could be said on on any of these topics that uh, um, I'd love to love to do that again. Absolutely, thank you. Well, that is, of course, the Maple Leaf Forever, the old national anthem of the Old Dominion, and it marks the start of the Canadian Content Corner. That's the part of the podcast where James and I just have a bit of a natter about Canadian military history, about Canadian gaming, or just general Johnny Canuck stuff that makes us darn proud to have maple syrup coursing through our veins. And so as the Maple Leaf Forever, played by Her Majesty's Irish Guards, dies away, Here is the Canadian Content Corner. Hey folks, on this part of the podcast on the Canadian Corner, we're talking to an honest-to-goodness Canadian miniatures guy. Morgan Drossen, joining us from Kingston, Ontario. How are you, Morgan? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Pleasure to be here. We're happy to have you, man. We talked, uh, James, about six months ago with uh, Cynthia Jing. Yes, very bright young lady. And we talked about the Laurentian Tabletop Group and its um, its outreach to campus gaming and how they chose Horse and, yeah. mu- horse and, horse and Musket, Horse and Musket, I can talk, <laughs> as a uh, as a way to get people into wargaming. And why not? I mean, Horse and Musket yeah. is cool for all sorts of reasons. It's a great, like, Horse and Musket is a great period. I mean, like, I... I kind of think it's it's cool they start with napoleonics which is an amazing period and they're doing seven years war now which again like both those periods have so much to offer they got color they got battles they got characters like so much cool stuff that's right um they're periods you can just spend your whole wargaming career in and some of us do but you can't do you can't do any gaming without the stuff and morgan um i guess it's fair to say you supply the stuff so why don't you take it away and tell us about yourself and tell us about uh tundra works and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty of what you guys do all right so uh i started wargaming at an incredibly young age i remember playing panzer general 2 on my dad's computer when i was five years old (laughs) nice and, I, re- uh, I remember Panzer General. And uh, got into miniature wargaming uh, when I was about 15 or so and never really looked back. Very good. Uh, once got into university, got into uh, historicals and sold all my 40K stuff pretty much immediately. <laughs> never looked back. And so with... I was working with the Carleton University Club at the time. And so when we started getting into historicals, um, we were buying a lot of miniatures from uh, companies like Blue Moon and Old Glory. 
And what we were finding was the miniatures themselves were uh, pretty decent quality. They were fairly cheap. But what we were really yeah. frustrated by was the import costs. Yes. Because when we were doing these bulk orders for, you know, 10 students to each have 500 or so figures, the weight alone of metal would get us slapped with all these import duties and tariffs and yeah. silliness. Even and with the even with dual glory army card with the 40% off. Exactly. And those were hectic times around Christmas when they would do those sales. But, uh, but what, and we started actually looking at the numbers and we kind of said to ourselves, you know, it might be cheaper just to make our own. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so that, that's where the kind of germ of this project really came from. And once we had kind of grasped that concept that, we, hey, we can actually do this. Um, one, once we grasped that, then we actually got into, okay, what do we want to see design-wise from these miniatures? And uh, the other classic pewter uh, producers, they put out some very fine miniatures, but we had some gripes in the sense that um, a lot of their detailing was hard to paint, especially for newer painters. Uh, you had a lot of weird overlapping elements that someone not familiar with the period might not even be able to tell like, oh, that's the cartridge box and the canteen is kind of stuck in behind it. So you have these little bits sticking out and not really sure how to paint yeah. it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Especially with old glory sculpts. You know, like you're, you're, it's like sometimes you're, you're, you get halfway around the figure and go, what, where, where, where'd this belt go? Yeah. You know? And and a, a particular little thing that I really, really disliked was um, the classic pose of the advance with the, the musket. You have the musket out at like a 45 degree. Uh, yeah. And they're pointing it forward. It looks great. It's a great pose, but you stick 40 of those on a base and trying to get the rear rank to not look like they're stabbing their buddy in the back of the head. And then when you have two units of these guys trying to get into quote unquote base contact and you physically can't because their bayonets are pushing against each other and it just makes the game that little bit more finicky. So what we were really trying to do with our design philosophy was make them easy to paint, especially for newer players and I'll, I'll get a bit more into how we accomplish that a bit later and have the poses be sort of captured on the base so you wouldn't have a whole lot of extraneous stuff poking outside of the silhouette of the base if that makes sense right no, that does yeah no um and so you're, at, you're approaching it like a gamer you're thinking like a gamer right we're trying to make gaming pieces here that um, you get these models, you can paint them up quickly and attend a really cool event where you you play and maybe you do a pickup game the week after. These are really meant to be played with. They're uh, not just for the collectors who want to have them sat on their shelf. And, and that's fine too, but that's not the 
people were really targeting with with tender words. Mm -hmm. And those people are, um, I guess, entry gamers. Uh, it's fair to say, like people who are new to historical gaming. New to historical gaming on the tabletop for sure. Right. Um, right a a right. lot of them do come from computer gaming, um, but new to the tabletop where yes they have to um you know peel off some mold lines and you know get their get their fingers covered in paint and do things the old school way mm -hmm. um, yeah so you you're thinking okay we need we need figures we don't like these bulk orders from uh old glory or whatever and uh by golly we're just going to make our own figures so walk us through what that looked like for you yeah so uh First step was getting, or just understanding the process. So what we were doing was we contracted out an artist to make us some 3D files, some STLs. And instead of just selling the, the STLs like a lot of other projects do, um, we then used these 3D prints to be our masters. So when you when you're working with molds, the first thing you need to do is bake your mold with um, with your master figure, and that will create the impression of the mold. And of course, we didn't have a proper vulcanizer, Ooh. so we I the very first mold I baked was actually on uh, my parents' barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> so we have this oh that worked for you it, it actually worked all right surprisingly enough oh. um oh. because the the temperatures you're working with aren't that that high you just need it fairly consistent um, yeah in within the ring frame so if you put it up like on the on the bun warming rack yes yeah, something like that. so it's away from the flames yeah it's, it, so oh. Um, it was actually on a uh, big green egg, if you're familiar with those barbecues. Anyway, okay, I'm not, yeah. not going to okay. get into the details of the barbecue, but uh, so yeah. once we had baked the mold, um, then it was a matter of learning how to cut the channels and the vents properly. Yep. And the first couple of times you know, I, I was, I cut away at it and did some stuff. I've tried, tried spinning it and... Like I was getting nothing. I was just so confused. Eventually found some some other folks to kind of mentor us through some of that and basically learned cut a lot. <laughs> um, let let the metal flow pretty freely. Once once we figured that out, then it was really a matter of uh, iteration and a lot of hours pouring metal. Um, sometimes in a freezing cold garage <laughs> that sounds very canadian yeah uh i mean it's it's part of why it's called tenderworks because uh there are a lot of very cold nights casting <laughs> casting miniatures <laughs> that's great well not so fun being over the crucible this past week but yeah yeah uh luckily i don't uh i don't deal i don't do the production directly anymore i i used to be the primary person making the miniatures but now we've handed that off as i've gone off to do other things okay um but i'm still 
very involved in the project doing doing other stuff. Yeah. And, and we want to talk about where the project is in a minute, but you're, I think before we started recording, you were telling us your, uh, your first foray was uh, Napoleonics. And uh, what did you learn doing that? With the Napoleonics, what we, and, and these were prototypes essentially that we were playing with. Um, I, I just want to make this very clear. I don't think we're going to see those show up for public sale until we do some serious re reworking the line because it was prototyping. Sure. It really sure. was. Yeah, but, got it. But what we learned from that um, was a lot of the quirks of spin casting because with a 3D print, you have a lot more freedom in the sense that you can have uh, voids in certain spaces because you always need yeah. to be thinking with spin casting, how is the metal actually going to flow through this, through this impression? So you can't have big empty spaces in the, in the middle of the model. You need things uh, supported in a very different way than 3D prints mm -hmm. and really trying to figure out how to get certain shapes to form properly. And, and the biggest issue was always flagpoles. Trying to get things to flow through these small channels was always always a difficulty. Right. Um, but having done a lot of that in the iteration, now we have a much better understanding of um, how do we cut these molds? How do we design our miniatures to properly, uh, properly circulate the metal, all that stuff? Uh, so that that was an extremely useful experience that we can now bring to a finished product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the the finished product is going to be the your line of Seven Years War figures, correct? <clears throat> yeah. So we're we're calling it uh, the Lace Wars because we're not doing just Seven Years War. We're doing some. Uh, War of Austrian Succession sort of stuff. Uh, we want to do some. Ideally, we'll we'll go into some some other regions and periods in that sort of middle to late horse musket era, uh, okay. pre Napoleonic stuff. So, are going to go on early, like back to War of Spanish Succession? I'm not sure if we'll go that early but at the moment what we're doing is austrians prussians the bourbons uh because the french and the spanish uniforms are exactly the same the spanish bought the license yeah. for the french uniform and england as well and russia so th those are our kind of core yeah. factions that we're we're bringing to the table and the russians for example uh there is a decent amount of overlap with the Great Northern War. Mm -hmm. So yep. there's some opportunities there as well. Yeah. Uh, uniform doesn't change a lot. It gets a, a slightly more uh, showy, you know, the Russian uniform in the mid 1700s than say at Poltava. So for those of you who are, um, are listening to this, I'm just putting up an image, which you can see on our YouTube channel of um, uh, the French figures. And they look pretty darn cool. Uh, there's a surprising amount of detail. I mean, I'm looking at some fairly nice shading on the white coats. Yes, yes. Uh, there's uh, lots of detail. I can see belt buckles quite nicely, the buttons. I mean, these are 
faces, you know, the faces, there's a fair bit of definition. So they look pretty good. Um, yeah. so, so one of the big objectives for um, making these very paintable, especially for newer painters, mm -hmm. um, was making really deep impressions in the, uh, like, coats, right? So yeah, you can right. see how, and this isn't the best image for it because it's dark coats, but um, there is a lot of opportunity to use inks, inks yeah. and washes, yeah. um, especially when dealing with a lot of stark white uniforms for the bourbons, uh, red uniforms, uh, and white uniforms for the Austrians as well, where you can uh, really exploit using uh, washes and inks to achieve some very nice effects very easily mm -hmm. and yeah. all of the detailing all those buttons those belt buckles <clears throat> we chose to exaggerate those uh, right. a good bit um like the heart clasps on turnbacks which i don't think we have a great i don't think i've provided an image of that but they are <laughs> much bigger than they than they should be but it allows painters to pick out those details very easily yeah and I'm, we're looking now at some of your british uh, figures so you've got some, it looks like you've got some guys in Grenadier miters towards the back and there's some detail there, but yep. the, mus the musicians look nice. The, uh, there's tons, again, there's tons of detail. And um, you were telling us, uh, you were telling me before we started, Morgan, that you deliberately um, chose some images where they were kind of painted for, for tabletop standard, right? So right. Uh, there's nothing wrong with these images. They look just fine to me. Um, but it, they look like the sort you'd see at a, at a club night, really, right? They're, they're functional, they're well-painted for what they do, and the, the flags look nice. Right, and yeah. no one within uh, our club is really interested in doing, like, competition painting, like crazy commission work or anything like that. Right. The idea is really get your army get it painted fairly quickly and have it still look pretty good because you're able to paint it quickly and the models themselves lend themselves to inks uh -huh. and those sort of techniques very well. Yeah. Um, now you can still do a lot of really interesting highlighting and stuff like that, but for the beginner painter, we've tried to make these as friendly as possible. Yeah. And I think one of the photos you sent us, uh, it looked like it was... Um, um, Prussian cavalry. That horse unit was that? I can't find I, it right now. I but was, believe, was it? I, I believe those are actually French cavalry. Okay. But anyway, the point is you've 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 got some horse figure. You've got some mounted figures as well as your uh, your infantry. Are, are there is there stuff like artillery and you know command figures and that sort of thing? So uh, artillery is coming. Uh, we don't. That's one of the few things we don't have in production currently. Um, but obviously we have quite a bit of other stuff in production. Um, general figures are also something that's, that's in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, but those are really, from a gameplay perspective, a lot less important than getting out, you know, the core infantry and cavalry. Sure. Um, Sure. I mean, a, a lot of people with uh, with the game that we're primarily working with, uh, Might and Reason by Dr. Stan Mustafa, is uh, for the command figures, just using tokens. Because yep. it's not like they're, um, you know, really interactable. It doesn't yep. really matter um, 
that they do certain things on the tabletop. Yeah, that makes sense. Cynthia was telling us as well that um, uh, uh, you folks use Blucher as a uh, as an intro game, as a recruiting game. And yeah, that's so high level a game that you really don't need, you know, like individual brigade commanders or stuff like that. So that makes sense. Yeah. Right. And um, since, since I brought it up, I should also mention we are uh, in talks with Dr. Sam Mustafa to provide a set of rules with, with the Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. um, it's not quite firmed up yet, but uh, we, ha we have hopes. And oh, that's that's and great. And again, it comes back to the playability aspect, where ideally what happens is if you buy an army from us, you have pretty much everything you need to start playing. Mm -hmm. So rules, um, things like flags, stuff like that? or uh... um, Flags are something that um, the, the end user will have to sort out, but they're Honestly, not that not that difficult, frankly. No, no. Just yeah, give them a link to War Flags. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> Download, you know, that's where I get my Prussian flags for from. Mm -hmm. yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about the Kickstarter. I, I've just got the page up right now. It, it it's early days for you folks yet, so it simply says um, uh, support our goal of launching a truly expensive horse and musket eighteen mil pewter miniatures range. And there's a button saying notify me on launch. So, um, when do you think um, when do you think you might launch? So we should be launching early to mid August. So when this podcast should be live. So, yep. Hopefully, when when our when your listeners are listening to this, they can check it out. But at the moment, uh, at the moment, it's just the coming soon sort of sort of splash page. Cool. Yeah. What uh, what levels have you thought of for the Kickstarter, Morgan, in terms of, um, you know, like basic pledges or stretch goals or stuff like that? So we're really centering this around army sets. Mm -hmm. um, we're not really interested in um, people buying like, oh, I'll get like one pack of Prussians to, you know, have on my shelf. That's really not what we're targeting we want ideally for people to you know purchase their army or two and be able to start playing or augment whatever other figure that uh whatever figure line they're they're currently using so it it will be centered around uh army packs and we'll have i know we'll have one pack for uh certain battle which i'm Blanking on which will give you both sides of um, one of the Austrian Prussian battles. And you'll also have army packs that will allow you to have like a full bourbon army right out the gate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And especially as um, our conversation with Cynthia, you know, we talked a lot about um, uh, how the Laurentian group sponsors these uh, campaigns, right? Where people can take the sides of different nations so it makes sense to have like a bourbon army or a russian army ready to go um w without maybe asking you to be too specific what what do you see as um as a price point for if i wanted to sort of say i want an 18 mil prussian army uh so we're, we're still working out some of the specifics on that i i, I honestly 
don't feel super comfortable saying a number just because it might be wrong when we look into some other uh, aspects like packaging and shipping. So no, fair fair enough, Morgan. I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. It's all good. It's just, we're, we're still sorting out some of the end costs um, that we'll, we'll need to take into account there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Packaging and, yeah, exactly. And you know the Kickstarter method can go so terribly wrong if you underprice your uh, your product, right? And then you're committed to, you know, shipping product at a loss. Uh, yeah, three thousand units. That you're, you might as well just send them fifty bucks each. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. and and that's certainly another thing. With um, this is partly why we're focusing on full army orders because. Mm-hmm. With, given our production method, you know, we have to slap the mold in the machine, pour the metal and run it that way. It's a lot, having a lot of little orders for stuff just isn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense for what we're trying to achieve. What we're trying to achieve is increase the amount of people playing these games. Um, so it's not really efficient for us to cater to the people who want these little groups of, oh, I just want some Prussian grenadiers. Right, right. Yeah, they can go elsewhere for sure. There's there's a lot of great lines that will cater to that sort of uh, of niche. Mm -hmm. And if you're you're kind of, because, you know, the great thing about Old Glory, at least used to be, was that it was like big bags of, you know, moderate, moderate quality figures but at a really good price mm-hmm. you know but now they've kind of lost the price but haven't improved the quality to make it worthwhile and then yeah the horrible shipping from the united states um you know i i was doing some cost comparison stuff and i found that i could get things cheaper from perry miniatures in the uk than to buy the same thing from from Old Glory. Right, and... You know, so if you can get that niche back that Old Glory seems to have abandoned. Exactly, and Old Glory, in my opinion, have... And obviously I don't have a lot of info on this other than anecdotal, but they really have stretched their, their lines. If you need, you know, 1809 Wurtenbergers you can probably find something pretty close. Um, yeah. Our project isn't really interested in a lot of those littler lines of someone who really wants, you know, Sardinian cavalry. That doesn't interest us as much because it's a lot less relevant from playing the game. And well, lot- yeah. And with the Lace Wars, you know, since everybody's you kind of had like two styles of coats. Everybody's wearing tricorns, right? Um, you know, like the and the, the huge tradition of imaginations with oh. with lace wars. It's just like you know, I just want I just want a guy, you know, guys in Austrian style coats, and I'm gonna paint them pink. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, turn backs or not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what we're really trying to do. Yeah. So I'm I'm trying to visualize what an army order from Tundra Works would look like Morgan. So would it be, uh, let's say I decide to buy one of your army sets 
the Bourbon army. Um, have you thought about roughly how many figures that would come with and would they be cast in strips or would they be individual or? So they would certainly be uh, individual figures. And so you would be getting, generally we, we call a unit or regiment usually uh, 16 figures. So you get a couple command poses in there, uh, a couple of like a bunch of musketeers and you generally need uh, for a bourbon army you'll need more so around i'd say 10 ish regulars three grenadiers slash guards a couple of lights so that's already 16 ish regiments then some probably six units of cavalry and a command figure and a couple guns well or probably a couple command figures, but again, we're we're still working out exactly how we're packaging these, so that that should be a rough idea of what you'd be getting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of figures. Yeah, and, it, and obviously it would depend on the rules too. But I think from what I remember of reading Might and Reason, you know, that would get you a, um, a for example, that would get you a fairly decent sized force. Yeah, you would have a lot of leeway with with that sort of thing, whether you want to play. Uh, and my, my reason has a really interesting scaling system where you get a certain number of points based on your general's quality. So if you're playing a good French commander, your army is going to be smaller than an average or poor French commander. So we're right, really trying right. to provide that leeway hmm. where you can play these different sorts of forces. Um, hmm. I, I think the smallest force will probably be like the the Frederickian Prussians, which not not that big. <laughs> so. Well they're off they're usually outnumbered, so yeah, and that's uh mm-hmm. that's part of the part of the meme of them, I suppose. Yeah. Cool. Well you know it's it's I have to say it's it's tempting for me because as I was saying to you before we started recording, uh, I'm currently doing horse and musket like seven I'm doing lace wars in um uh, 28 mil using foundry and front rank figures and enjoying painting them but I sometimes think you know it'd be nice to put like a mass of them on the table especially as my friend James here has 15 mil seven years worth of figures um, I do. you do so I, I'm thinking I should check this out when your Kickstarter goes live that's very tempting because I was looking at maybe doing uh, I mean we have so many we're spoiled for choice right I was thinking about Bacchus or thinking about Pendragon's ranges, but you know you have to think about well, what do my friends have, right? And in in a club context like yours, um, you know I, I really like that you're you're delivering a turnkey solution. So we're going to watch this with interest and uh, wish you all the best. And, and turn, turnkey solutions certainly seem to be the way to get people in. Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's very smart. I think what you're doing. And, uh, uh, so one other point I want to cover, because uh, I, I think it might uh, be a bit confusing for some people. The reason we're calling it uh, 18 millimeter is because if you look at a lot of quote unquote 15 millimeter lines, uh, AB, Old Glory, they are huge. They're not really close to, if you actually measure them, 15 millimeter from yeah. foot to forehead. So what we're trying to do is be explicit and say, look, these are 18 millimeter figures, but that should really be understood as in the same 
size class as those figures, as those uh, quote unquote figures. Right. So I can, so I could buy a Tundra Works French Army, and it would look just fine on the table with my old glory Prussians and my Eureka Austrians. So that, that's the idea. They should line up cool. pretty closely. All right. Yeah. Wow. Very tempting. So uh, I, I guess just a wrap up question, Morgan, um, your, your distribution, your goals are, are North American to begin with, Canadian to begin with, or anybody who wants to send you an order? Um, so we're, we're certainly paying very close attention to the Canadian uh, context. Um, getting things out to America isn't that difficult. And internationally, we should be able to handle that. But uh, again, we're still working out some of the uh, finer points of that. But for the moment, the plans are anyone can, can order these. Okay, cool, cool. All right. Are you going to be um, going to any... Any shows once you have wares to exchange for coin? <laughs> I, I would certainly like to. Um, Hot lead coming up in you know, at the end of March. Just throwing that out there as the guy that runs Hot Lead. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I would I would certainly like to, um, but it's uh, really dependent on uh, a lot of scheduling. So I mean, we're we're a pretty small team, and getting getting us together in the same room for anything can be difficult. So obviously I can't commit, but I would certainly love to love to come out. I'll make you the same deal that I used to used to give Bob merch when he was, you know, selling stuff out of a, out of a like sample sample case. I think it was an old floor shine shoe sample <laughs> box that he had. And I, that would totally be suit Bob Merch entirely. He would run. He he would run games for us, and I would let him just like set up his little box by the tape by the game, and he would sell things as he's running running his event. So you know, if you you know, want to have some armies underneath the table, and you put on a you know Maurice game or LaSalle game, and you know, say, "Stay, buddy, I got an army of French here for you." Yeah. You know. <laughs> Yeah, eighty bucks. Come on, make me a deal. Yeah, yeah. Like, but you know, you'd have to. You know, your 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 team would have to would have to put on a, a participation game though. So oh, for sure. You know, what, I, mean, I like the way I like the way James you said wears in exchange for coin. I think for a second you sounded like <laughs> a bad Dungeons and Dragons NPC. <laughs> I have wares if you have coin. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, with the kids. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. No, and that's exactly what Joe Saunders did at Hot Lead this year. James, he had uh, was selling his scenery um, on the side of his uh, his game. Oh, he yeah, he rented a booth and had a table too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I'm sure we could make uh, Morgan a deal. He went all in. Yeah, so. yeah. Anyway, no, it would, it would be pretty hypocritical of us to uh, you know tout. Yeah, we do gaming. We're gaming focused, and then show up and just have a booth. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh yeah. I think, you know, the exciting thing about this is uh, as a Canadian Wargaming podcast to, to see a line of figures from a, a Canadian company com coming out of the gate. I mean, that's that's a cool story in itself. Yeah. And your name is pretty darn Canadian. Tundra Works. We like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, 
yeah, as I said, we will follow this with interest. Uh, and um, when this podcast goes live, uh, by then we'll have some uh, some of the, those photos uh, you sent us on our uh, Facebook page. And uh, we'll do uh, we'll do what we can to spread the good word. So, Morgan, thanks very much for dropping in and being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. This was this is fantastic. All right, we'll check in good. with you down, check in with you down the road and hear how it's going. I'm sure. Yeah. Good luck, eh? Thank good you luck. Very much. So James and I recorded that interview with Morgan Drossen from Tunderworks back on July 22nd. I'm wrapping this up by myself on the evening of August the 13th, and I just got an email today from Morgan telling me that their Kickstarter is now live, and I went and had a look at it uh, tonight, and yeah, all of their options are available. There's a um, There's some great images of the miniatures. They look very, very tasty. So I'm very excited that uh, uh, they've gotten to that point, that they've been able to launch um, this project. And it looks like they've, they're, uh, I think they've got about 24 days left to go and uh, they're, they're well on their way, almost to 50% backing. So I'm going to put a link to their uh, Kickstarter page uh, in the podcast notes and I encourage you to have a look at it. So well done. Um, Tundra Works, um, really, really looking forward to seeing a successful uh, completion. Speaking of the 18th century, I've been busy in uh, my basement and cranking out some really, really interesting um, prototype figures from Henry Turner. These are Seven Years War figures that uh, I've been um, scaling for six millimeter just because I promised Henry that I'd print them and try to paint some for him for his Kickstarter launch. Uh, and also I printed some at 18 millimeter just to see how they look. And uh, I'll try to post some images on my blog. In other <coughs> Canadian hobby news, just Six Squared are friends from St. Catharines who made a name for themselves. Uh, they've been around in the Canadian hobby scene for five or six years. And I kind of thought of them as... Um, you know, MDF guys, the sort of Canadian version of war bases, they've really, really been my go-to source for um, MDF. Um, but they have um, announced, uh, this is not new, it's been around for about a month now, they've announced uh, the opening of a, a retail space in St. Catharines, Ontario. And it looks like they'll be branching out to cover a whole range of, uh, you know, uh, hobby suppliers, content providers, um, miniatures, the works so very very excited to uh, see that happening my wife joy always enjoys driving down to wine country uh, we do that at least once or twice a year and uh, there are a lot of good wineries um, in the st catharines area so that'll be an excuse for me to say honey well we're uh, visiting wineries could we stop at six squared uh, you know i'm going to do that uh, and i'm actually hoping that we can get uh, we can get them on the show at some point to talk to them and see how it's going Next month, we're going to be talking, I hope, with uh, Glenn Pierce. Glenn was on our podcast a couple of months ago talking about Napoleonic rule sets. And um, Glenn is going to be hosting uh, a 10-player game tomorrow at his place in um, East Toronto, uh, the Battle of Shiloh in 6mm. I have to say, I was really, really looking forward to going to that. But a week ago, <clears throat> I came down with this annoying cough and then uh, started feeling really crappy. And that's when, for the first time since the pandemic started, I've tested positive and I'm still testing positive today, even though I feel pretty good. 
but that means I can't go and take part in that. So we'll get Glenn on the podcast uh, next month and talk to him. And we're also hoping to do a little sidebar interview with a Montreal uh, games developer, Mark Rodrigue. Mark uh, has a significant gaming credit to his name. He's the uh, uh, designer of the um, very, very successful GMT board game, Bayonets and Tomahawks, which is a look at the French-Indian Wars. I played it a bit. I really, really like this game and um, hoping to get uh, Mark on the podcast as a sidebar interview in our Canadian content corner. I know that uh, James has been painting uh, tons of Napoleonic Prussians. You can have a look at his blog um, to see. <clears throat> they all look really, really good. I'm always impressed at how quickly James knocks figures uh, into shape. I've been working at a somewhat slower rate. I've just been super, super sick uh, for the better first part of this week. So I've uh, just now been able to sit at my painting desk for a while and also do the editing for today's podcast. I feel well enough to do that. But I've been working on some early Imperial Roman cavalry from Victrix to uh, chase my Germanic barbarians around the table. And uh, I have a whole lot more early Roman auxiliary legionnaires in the queue to do as well. So I've been busy taking a little break from the Seven Years' War and doing uh, Ancients. So <clears throat> that really is uh, a good place to finish. It's uh, been a really, really great podcast. I'm really, really happy that we got to talk to Robert Engen, and I'm looking forward to having him back. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We never will put our hands out. There's no uh, Patreon. This is entirely self-funded. And it's self-funded because we believe in what we're doing and we believe in telling stories about the Canadian hobby. All we ask of you in return, my friends, is to listen to as much or as little as you want. And if you like what you hear, to tell others about it. Um, please drop us a note. Uh, look at our contact information in the pod notes. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you're doing. You can also interact with us on the Canadian Wargamer Facebook page. So once again, on behalf of James, thanks very much. Take care. Blessings to your brushes and your dice. As longtime listeners to the podcast know, we finish each episode with a uh, piece of music from Canada's military tradition. And as you heard me promise our guest, Dr. Robert Engen, who is the official historian of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry Regiment, we're going to close uh, as a little tribute to him with the Regimental March of the Patricias. So here we go. Mm-hmm.